How does religion impact warfare? This is Brief Before Impact. Hey, welcome everyone. This is episode 43. I'm your host, Matt Parker. Hope everybody had a terrific Thanksgiving. It is great to be back with you. The reason for today's topic, I had been listening to another podcast recently, a guy who I greatly respect, and he brought up the question of how much do Americans know about comparative religion or just religion outside of the United States? I think this is a very valid question. I think Americans, generally speaking, are not too terribly interested in things outside of our borders. Obviously, there is the occasion that it's not true, but I would think since America is, one, geographically such a large country, second, we are the top of the food chain, if you will, economically speaking, so much attention is drawn towards us. And that's a great thing. I'm not complaining. However, I think there is value in understanding the religions of other countries, particularly our enemies. So when I started exploring this concept, I wanted to understand how has and how does religion impact warfare? So today's topic is going to cover three main religions, widespread religions, that and how they've approached war, how people become more or less religious in times of conflict, and last, I'm going to highlight just three examples from the 20th century that perhaps can illustrate how religion can inspire war or even draw international support for it. Before we jump into it, let me take a quick ad break, and then we'll get to work. Now, welcome back, everyone. I'm going to start off with these three religions. I'm going to highlight Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism, and just a little bit about how they have approached their, their course, their path to how they approached warfare. So starting with Christianity. Now, in the early Christianity, St. Augustine's concept of just war was widely accepted, but not but warfare wasn't regarded really as a virtuous activity. And the expressions of concern for the salvation of those who killed enemies in battle, regardless of the cause for which they fought, it was very common. And this is according to historian Edward Peters. And Peters wrote that before the 11th century, Christians had not developed a concept of a, quote, holy war, whereby fighting itself might be considered as potential and spirituality or spiritually meritorious act. During the 9th and 10th centuries, multiple invasions occurred, which led some regions to make their own armies to defend themselves, and this slowly led to the emergence of the Crusades, the concept of holy war, and terminology such as, the, quote, the enemies of God later in the 11th century. Second, with Islam. Now, the Muslim conquest were military expansion on an unprecedented scale, beginning in the lifetime of Muhammad and spanning the centuries down to the Ottoman Wars in Europe. According to Majid Kaduri, writing War and Peace in the Law of Islam, in, until the 13th century, the Muslim conquests were those of more or less coherent empire, the caliphate. But after the Mongol invasions, expansion continued on all fronts and for another half millennium until the final collapse of the Mughal Empire in the east and the Ottoman Empire in the west with the onset of the modern period. Now, while technically the millennium of Muslim conquest could be classified as religious war, the applicability of the term has been questioned. The reason 
is that the very notion of religious war as opposed to secular war is the result of the Western concept, the separation of church and state. No such division has ever existed in the Islamic world, and consequently, there cannot be a real division between wars that are religious from that that are non-religious. Islam does not have any normative tradition of pacifism, and warfare has been an integral part of Islamic history, both for the defense and the spread of the faith since the time of Muhammad. This was formalized in the juristic definition of war in Islam, which continues to hold normative power in the contemporary Islam, inextricably linking political and religious justification for of war. So this normative concept is known as jihad. It's an Arabic word with the meaning to strive or to struggle, which includes the aspect of the struggle by the sword. Finally, with Buddhism. Buddhism was formally introduced into Japan by missionaries uh, from the kingdom of Baekje in 552. Now, adherents of the native Shinto religion, they resisted the spread of Buddhism. And several military conflicts broke out, starting with the Soga Manhabi conflict from 552 to 55, or 587 between the pro Shinto Manhabi clan and the pro Buddhist Sogon clan. This is according, according to the Encarta Encyclopedia. So now you have these three examples of very widespread religions Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism with a history of uh, religious war unfolding and developing itself over the course of history and the spread of those religions. Now, moving into the second part of today's episode is how, in fact, are people more or less religious in the times of warfare? Now, no one living in the 21st century, for example, needs reminding that terrorism and warfare is often driven by religious fervor. But does living in a nation engaged in or threatened by armed conflict make people more religious? There's new newly published research that presents evidence that indeed it does. This is according to War, Worries, and Religiousness, presented by two Chinese psychologists, Hong Fei Du and Pei Li Qi. And the report of these people uh, whose, whose countries are more involved with wars and similar conflicts experience higher levels of existential fear, which drive them to religiosity. Now, previous surveys have found that highly religious Americans tend to be more supportive of war, as well as torturing one's own opponents. And then this raises a profound and troubling question. Could it be that our conflict and intense religiosity are in mutually reinforcing relationship? Basically, does war and being really religious enhance the other? The relationship between war and religiousness may not be bidirectional, writing Du and Chi of the writing from the University of Macau. Quote, war strengthens individuals' religiousness due to their worries about war, while fundamental religious beliefs result in violent conflicts and war. So people whose countries are more involved with wars experience higher levels of existential fear, which then drives them to just being more religious. Now, Du and Chi's study, which was published in the Social Psychology and Personality Science, they used data from over 82,000 people 57 different nations. And as a part of the 2010 World Values Survey, participants answered questions about their religiosity, including how often they prayed or attended services, their religious identity, whether they would even consider themselves a religious person, and lastly, being a belief. Do they have a belief in God? And they also indicated the degree to which they felt worried by a, a war involving my country, a, a terrorist attack, or a civil war. 
And the state of their home nations was determined by the Global Peace Index, which measured things of the number of external or internal conflicts that fought by a given country, its level of safety and security, uh, including rate of violent crime, level of militarization, including military expenditures as a percentage of GDP. So comparing a composite index of those factors with the you know, aforementioned assertions of faith, the researchers found that people tend to be more religious when their countries are involved in wars, terrorist attacks, or other types of conflicts. The positive association was found for all three indicators, religious practice, religious identity, and belief in God. It was partially explained by uh, war-related anxiety. As predicated or predicted by terror management theory, if you're fearful that you or a loved one could die in battle or a terrorist attack, you're more likely to turn to God. Importantly, uh, Du and Chi, they found violent conflict was associated with greater religiousness, whether or not the war in question was religion-based. So, quote, they write, even war without religious involvement is associated with an increase in people's religious practices and beliefs. So, war and terrorism, whatever the root causes, create a more fearful populace, much of which assages this anxiety through intensified religiosity. And while most conflicts are not religion-based, many of the deadliest are. You know, Think about the Middle East, for example. With righteousness often providing a cover of justification for more prosaic struggles over land or power, that fighting for our faith rationale is presumably easier to sell to a devout public. If that's true in actuality, it suggests a troubling dynamic uh, violent conflict increases religiosity, which in turn helps enable violent conflict. So you can see the the intertwining of religious practice and belief and the impacts on warfare on the human mind and how they can actually uh, fuel one another. So the last part of today's episode, looking at some modern examples in the uh, 20th century, I wanted to highlight a few things that I wasn't aware of until I started diving into it. The three are uh, Sri Lanka, Iraq, and lastly, a place that I never heard of until I went to grad school, Nakarno-Karabakh. And I want to highlight how each of these have their own religious shade or, or so forth that highlights how religion is either used for or even inspires certain types of conflict. So starting with Sri Lanka, uh, according to David Little for the United States Institute of Peace, for over two millennium, uh, the Buddhists and Hindus of Sri Lanka lived together in relative peace. But in the 20th century, uh, this small island republic off the coast of India has been racked by recurrent violence and ethnic tension, especially since the independence in 1948. Now, the majority Sinhalese population, which are predominantly Buddhist, and the Tamil minority, which are mainly Hindu and some Muslims, they have competed fiercely over questions of rate, language, religion, and political control. The several revisions of the Constitution have failed to resolve these issues, and the post-independence period has witnessed horrific riots, uh, guerrilla movements on both sides, and pro-government death squads, as well as a... You know, peacekeeping effort by Indian forces to try to protect the Tamil minority and to resolve the dispute. 
Moving to Iraq, according to Lawrence Klein, he wrote the prospects of the Shia insurgency movement in Iraq. Here's a, just a quick history lesson on Islam. You have a lot of sects in the religion, but you have predominantly the Shia and the Shia and the Sunni uh, sects. They had approached the religion quite a bit differently, and often there's a lot of conflict in between them too. So whenever you hear me say the Shiites or the Sunnis, keep that in mind. They're both practicing the same religion, just going about it differently. That's a very, very simple way of explaining it. So according to Klein, the 1991 Iraqi uprisings were ethnic and religious uprisings. And they were led by the Shiites and the Kurds against Saddam Hussein. FYI, the Kurds, they are a people who live in northern Iraq, southern Turkey, and they want their own country. Just a little history there. So, Shiites and Kurds went against Saddam Hussein. So, the uprisings lasted from March to April of 1991. Not a long time. After a ceasefire following the end of the Gulf War, the mostly uncoordinated insurgency was fueled by the perception that Saddam Hussein had become vulnerable to regime change. This perception of weakness was largely the result of the outcome of the Iran-Iraq War and the Gulf War, both of which occurred within a single decade and devastated the population and the economy of Iraq. So Hussein got his butt kicked pretty good in Iraq War, Iran-Iraq War, and then the Gulf War, and that was all within a 10-year period. So the Shiites and the Kurds saw Hussein as very weak, and they didn't like what he was doing to, the, to them. So they're like, all right, let's take advantage of this opportunity. So that's what's going on here. So back to the Klein. He writes, within the first two weeks, most of Iraq's cities and provinces fell to rebel forces. Participants of the uprising were a diverse mix of ethnic, religious, political affiliations. And that included, included military mutineers, uh, people, you know, military members of Saddam Hussein's army who uh, started fighting against him. Also, Shia Arab Islamist, Kurdish nationalists, and far-left groups. Now, following initial victories, the revolution was held back from continued success by internal divisions, as well as a lack of anticipated American or Iranian support. So, Saddam's Sunni Arab-dominated Ba'ath Party, this was uh, the political party, and they are Sunni fighting against the Shias, uh, the Ba'ath Party regime managed to maintain control maintain control over the capital of Baghdad and soon largely suppressed the rebels in a brutal campaign conducted by loyalist forces spearheaded by the Iraqi Republican Guard. So during this brief, roughly one month period of unrest, tens of thousands of people died and about nearly two million people were internally displaced within the country, meaning they didn't have a home anymore. Now, lastly, to our example of how the conflict could be labeled as religious in an effort to garner international support, but actually has alternative origins. This is the Nagorno-Karabakh situation. So according to Harach Chilikirian, who wrote Religious Discourse on the Conflict of Nagorno-Karabakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, it's this very small territory. It's about 4,300 square kilometers, and it's in the South Caucasus. You remember that's little south of Russia, east of Europe. All right. With an Armenian population of about 150,000 people, it remains the oldest region with unresolved conflict in the former Soviet Union. The crux of this conflict 
is the right of self-determination of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh on the one hand, and then the territorial integrity of what is now the Republic of Azerbaijan on the other. All right, What had started as a, a popular movement for self-determination, this was 1998, it turned into a full-scale war by 1991 with far-reaching political and military implications. Now, today, the situation is further complicated by the fact that both parties in the conflict, the Armenians of Karabakh and the Republic of Azerbaijan, consider what used to be the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast a very integral part of their respective territories. So since the beginning of the movement, the Karabakh movement, in 1988, uh, the armenian Azeri conflict has been portrayed, particularly by Western media, as an ethnic rivalry between Christian Armenians and Muslim Azerbaijanis. And through the years, both, have, both sides have persistently rejected this kind of characterization. So what they're saying here is that the West has said, oh, this is a religious war between Christians and Muslims. And the actual participants in this conflict have said, no, that's not what's going on here. So on several occasions, Armenian and Azeri government and religious leaders have stated that the war in and for Karabakh was not a religious war at all. So, despite the official declarations, religious symbolism and sentiment seem to be more, more than just peripheral aspects of the conflict. Both Armenian and Azerbaijani nationalism and irredentist passion have been heightened by a, quote, new religious consciousness. So, for example, Chilingirian's essay examines this religious dimension of the war particularly focusing on the role of the Armenian church and the clergy and the language of religious discourse in uh, uh, the religious discourse in Karabakh. Now, when limitations on religious freedom were lifted, beginning uh, with the perestroika in the mid-1980s, most countries that were under Soviet influence experienced a resurgence of religious faith and revival. So think about, you've been in a country that's a part of the Soviet Union for decades, where religion was shunned, and now all of a sudden it's coming back to the fourfold, and it's coming back very fast pace. So the the sudden return to religion and the subsequent ritual catharsis caught by the caught the established Church of Armenia really in surprise. The church was ill prepared, as it had neither the resources, the personnel, nor the leadership to respond to the the growing spiritual needs of the people. So as in the case of the other churches in Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union, the Armenian church was also faced with the problem related to the anti-religious socialization and ignorance of the flock and accusations of collaboration with a communist regime. So now you have these two groups who want claim over a very small piece of land and right in the late 80s and early 90s, they are seeing this resurgence of religious passion. And though both sides claim there was no, this is not a religious war, it's a territorial dispute, the West uh, being involved right at the end of the Soviet Union, in the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, used this from a media perspective uh, as an opportunity to highlight a, you know, a spiritual or a religious rivalry between Christian Armenians and Muslim Azerbaijanis. So, Highlighting these three examples, you can see how both religion intertwines its way, obviously in society, uh, but can impact how one group 
uses a political situation, whether it's a territorial dispute, lack of political representation perhaps in, in a, a governing body, and they can use that religion to um, drive, drive a focus to their cause and why it has such importance. Concluding out today with our courses of action regarding religion and its impact on war, for the most likely course of action in my assessment, religion will most likely play, you know, always have either a small or a big role in conflicts in the future. In a small manner, religion can be used as a tool to encourage soldiers and citizens against the possibility of defeat, you know, armed with the knowledge of their destiny in an afterlife. Now, in a large manner, religion could be used as the catalyst to a conflict, whereas it's the rallying call for both soldiers and citizens alike that could be that their very religion or their belief system is under attack. Most dangerous course of action, in my assessment, would be when the religion most dangerously could be used to provide individuals or groups the confidence and the moral clarity to accomplish kinetic attacks on innocent non-combatants, you know, the lone wolf type of attacks or even coordinated terrorist attacks against civilians who don't actually represent a recognized government. They're just merely living their lives in you know, the target country. Now, that is nothing new. We are very familiar with it, especially in a post-9-11 world. But in my view, it still represents the most dangerous course of action for any religion. You know, rather than being a tool to grow closer to its God, religion then becomes a tool for a political outcome. And to finish off today, with since I haven't spoken much about the United States and its religious intertwinings and how warfare is attributed to it, and certainly has a Judeo-Christian values or long-withstanding in our society. I wanted to close out with a quote from George Washington, and this is him summing up the importance of religion uh, right at the start of our great country with a particular eloquence in his farewell address. And he said, Whatever may be conceded to, the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us, to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. So thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you being back. Looking forward to a couple more episodes before the end of 2021. You can follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. As always, I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.